Well, good morning. I'm excited to, to be able to come this morning uh, to bring uh, the word to all of us this morning. It's always a, a wonderful and terrifying thing to stand before people and to say, this is what the Lord says. And at the same time, it's just, uh, it is a joy uh, to, uh, uh, to, be, uh, to be able to, to share the words of God with you this morning. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, we're going to look at 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 this morning. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. And I'm excited to be able to kick off and start this elder sermon series that we're calling Convictions of a Faithful Church. Uh, over the next few weeks, like Randy mentioned, we're going to be looking at biblical principles uh, that drive our philosophy of ministry here at Faith Community Church. Uh, these are the principles that, that drive the, the ministries that we undertake here at the church. Um, and since it's the word of God that governs everything that we do from the pulpit to the preschool, I thought there would be no better place to start than the sufficiency of the inerrant, authoritative word of God. Our church and every ministry that we engage in in this church is founded on and governed by the Word of God. Uh, in fact, in our church constitution and bylaws, which you can read online, by the way, if you didn't know that, you just go to the website, look under the documents, you can read everything that we believe uh, as Faith Community Church. The very first tenet in the doctrinal statement is about the Word of God. Actually, I want to read it to you so you know what you're professing to believe if you are a member here at Faith Community Church. And Lord willing, you believe even by attending here at Faith Community Church. But we believe that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired, and it is the record of God's revelation of himself to man. Thus, the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary word of God, which means it's inspired equally in all parts. The word of God is verbally inspired in every word, absolutely inerrant in the original documents, infallible and God-breathed. God spoke his written word by a process of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit so superintended the authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man without error in the whole or in part. The single true interpretation of scripture is to be found as one diligently applies the literal grammatical, historical method of interpretation, taking account of its literary forms and devices. This interpretation can only be found in dependence on the enlightenment given by the Holy Spirit. The truth of Scripture stands in judgment of men. Never do men stand in judgment of it. Being infallible, the Bible is sufficient to make the believer complete, equipped, for all things related to life and godliness, the scripture will remain unchanged in its authority and efficacy forever. That's our statement as a church of what we believe the word of God is. All of those statements came from the word. Uh, they're just our way as a church of, of basically explaining things that the word of God says. If you want to go see the references, you can look at it yourself. But this morning, we're going to look at one of those references. We're going to look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. And we're going to expound these two verses so we can more clearly and precisely understand the profit and purpose of Scripture. 
why the Lord has given us his word. So read with me 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and then we will, uh, we will dive in. The Lord says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to understand these words. Father, we come before you this morning knowing that we are fully dependent upon your spirit for clear understanding. We're fully dependent upon uh, you uh, to reveal to us your divinely inspired word. We're thankful that you have given to us your written word, and we're thankful that you've given to us your spirit to understand your truth. And Father, we pray, help all of us, help all of us to see uh, the power of your word this morning, uh, convict us, uh, help us to repent, help us to, to change and to glorify you uh, through your word doing its work in our lives today. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen. So the first question we're going to ask ourselves, or the first question we're going to answer this morning is, what is Scripture? What is Scripture? And this is the very first thing that Timothy said, or that Paul says to Timothy here in verse 16. He says that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is inspired by God. All means all. This is the totality of Scripture. Every part, every letter, every little mark on every letter all things that God has given to us in his word have been uh, completely and fully inspired by him. Like I said in the doctrinal statement, we believe in the plenary inspiration of scripture, which means we believe that every bit of the word of God, every part is divinely inspired. Just like Jesus said, that man is dependent on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the written word of God is what has proceeded out of the mouth of God, what God has revealed to us here in this life for us to be able to know him and his ways and his will. The word scripture here, it's, it's the word graphe. It, it can mean any piece of writing, but in the New Testament, it's used 50 times, and every time it is used in the New Testament, it is referring specifically to the holy scripture, the word of God. So, it's not just referring to any writing, but it's referring to the holy word of God, the, the book that you have in your hand, the scripture that God put together for us. Every word, every doctrine, every command, every genealogy from Genesis to Revelation is divinely inspired by him. And the word inspired here, it, it's, it's the only time this word is used in the Bible. It's a compound word that Paul put together. It means God breathed. He put God and breathed together and made up a word. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. And, and, and what it literally means and what it's meant, how we're meant to understand it is that these words have been expelled out of the lungs of God. These are God's actual words. It's not men that were inspired by the thoughts of God or the things of God and wrote words about God. It is God who breathed his words to mankind had man write down his words so that his people could know exactly who he is and what his will is without error in an infallible way. It is God's own voice. It is God's own word. And if you read God's word and see what God's word says about itself, there's a lot of really great things to pull out of his word to understand what his word is. First thing, we know that his word was established, confirmed, and finished by him in heaven before creation. 
Psalm 119, 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. God's will and ways and mind and word have been settled before creation. And he has given to us all that we need to know during this time so that we can know his will and his ways. Christ said, and of all people, God himself expounding on the, the, the word that he gave to us, Christ said in John 10, 35, that scripture can never be broken. It will never be disregarded. It will never be disabled. It will never be destroyed. It will never be detracted. It will never be changed. It will never be modified. It will never be interrupted. And it will never be incapable of accomplishing the will of the Lord. Christ went on to say in Luke 16, 17, that it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. It is complete in power and it is complete in all that it accomplishes and it cannot fail and it cannot change and nothing will stop the Lord from accomplishing his will through his word. We know that the word of God precedes creation like we've seen and it will outlast creation. Matthew 24, 35 says that heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus says my words will not pass away. The word of God is more permanent and stable and fixed and settled than the created order itself. God's word cannot and will not fail and will never be broken. Everything proclaimed by God must be fulfilled and must be accomplished exactly as he says it will happen. In Matthew 5.18, again, Christ says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. All will be accomplished exactly as he has said it, exactly as he has willed for it to happen. And then in Luke 24.44, again, Christ speaking of himself in the word of God says, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything, not only his first coming, death, resurrection, ascension, but his second coming, all he will do on this earth for a thousand years and then for all eternity. Everything about Christ, which the scripture reveals from Genesis to Revelation, will happen according to the way that God has disclosed it to us perfectly. It must be fulfilled. We know that it is the word of God, and we know it is the word of God that will judge all mankind at the end of this created order. Jesus, again, the actual judge of all men, says in John 12, 48, that he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Not only will the word of God outlast creation, But it is the word of God that will stand in judgment over all human beings who have breathed on this planet when Christ judges the hearts of the living and the dead. The word of God stands in judgment over us now. Both now and forever, we are under the judgment of the word of God. We never have the right or authority to stand in judgment over his word. It does not matter how intelligent you think someone is how educated, how enlightened, how experienced, how informed, how influential, how knowledgeable, how accomplished, how powerful. Anyone who disagrees or disregards the word of God is only a fool. Only a fool. And every single one of us has been in that place. All of us were at one time fools. 
at one time enemies, at one time without hope and without God in this world. And God, by his great mercy and his wonderful love and his glorious grace, opened our eyes, caused us to believe, drew us to himself. And that is why every child of God is sitting in here right now. Not by our own will and our own knowledge and our own intellect, but by the wonderful grace of God. He finds his children and he saves them through the power of the gospel, through the power of his word, through the power of his spirit. And the Lord says that in Galatians 1, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, preaches a different gospel contrary to the one that we have received in his written word, then they are to be accursed, condemned, damned forever. Because it is the only gospel that saves. And we do not mess with his perfect word. It is not the words of man. It is the word of God. God worked through mankind to proclaim and record his divine message. But it is his divine message. It's his divine message without error, without mistake, without flaw. Because God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. And God is in all places at all times fully. He controls the revelation of his word to mankind perfectly so that we have his holy word. It's been revealed to mankind throughout time by his prophets and ultimately by his son, Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh. John MacArthur in his commentary on 2 Timothy says this, and I thought these were, this is a really neat quote. The Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, contains at least 680 claims to divine inspiration. Such claims are found 418 times in the historical books of the Old Testament, 195 times in the poetic books, 1,307 times in the prophetic books. The New Testament contains more than 300 direct quotations and at least 1,000 indirect references from the Old Testament, almost all of them declaring or implying that they were God's own word. The book of Hebrews opens with the declaration God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. The writer was speaking of both testaments, God speaking through the prophets representing the Old Testament, and God speaking through his son, Jesus Christ, representing the new. Many New Testament writers directly testified that they knew they were writing God's word. It is both remarkable and significant that although most, if not all, of the human writers were aware that they were recording scripture. That's mind-blowing if you actually stop and think about that sentence. The biblical writers make some 4,000 claims to be writing God's word, yet they offer no defense for being employed by God in such an elevated function. Despite their realization of their own sinfulness and fallibility, they wrote with the utter confidence that they spoke infallibly for God and that his revelation itself is its own best irrefutable defense. Again, I mean, if you're a fallible man, you're, you're insane to think you're ever going to produce something that is inerrant, perfect, authoritative, and infallible. And at the same time, these men who were not highly educated, who were not special people in this world, understood that God was disclosing his divine revelation through them. And, and again, I, I just can't even imagine that. 
But that being said, the Bible itself proclaims itself over 4,000 times to be God's own word. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 is one of those references. Peter says, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's, that's a good way to look at all scripture. There is not a word in scripture, not a word in scripture that is a matter of man's own interpretation or his own design. Even when we talk about historical accounts, genealogies, uh, 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 accounts of wars and things that happened in, in the Bible, each word was divinely placed there by God so that we would be instructed exactly what we need throughout history to know him, to believe in him, to follow him, to obey him, to understand his plan and his ways and will. Every bit of it. Even the parts we don't fully understand. God is the author. God is the source. These are the words of God. This is the mind and the will of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, that answers what scripture is. Scripture is God's revealed word in perfect form to mankind. So what is the profit of scripture? Why? What, what is the profit of scripture? What is the benefit of scripture? He goes on in the, the second half of the Second Timothy 3.16 to say that scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, profitable for reproof, profitable for correction, and profitable for training in righteousness. All scripture is profitable. The word profitable here, it just means it's beneficial, it's advantageous. It is useful and helpful in aiding us here in this life as his children. Other places in the Bible speak of the profit and benefit of scripture. Kyle just came and read from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is awesome. 176 verses of, of just declaring and praising the profitability of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture, the, the, the glory and wonder of God's revealed word. It's huge, go read it. The whole thing, God's word is awesome. God's word is awesome. God's word is awesome. God's word is awesome. Listen to God's word, it's awesome. That's Psalm 119, Brian's paraphrase. Psalm 19, seven through 11 says it this way. It praises God's sufficient word, shows how God's word always meets our spiritual needs. Psalm 119, seven through 11 says this. It says the law of the Lord is perfect. He could have ended there and that would have been perfect. But he explains, it restores the soul. He says the testimony of the Lord is sure it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. They are sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, them, more, moreover, by them, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. That is the living word of God. It's his wonderful word. It's more desirable than gold for his children. It's sweeter than honey for his children. It is through his word that we are warned, and it's through his word that we have reward. This is the word of God. This is all for our profit as his children. Here in 2 Timothy 3.16, we see the profitability or the benefit of scripture explained in four phrases 
And they all begin with the word for. They all begin with the word for. The first two benefits deal with belief and faith. The second two benefits deal with conduct and action. John Stott, in his commentary, said the prophet of Scripture relates both to creed and to conduct. And I think it's a good way to look at this verse and understand what's going on here. So the first benefit of Scripture that we find here in the Word of God is that the Word of God is profitable for teaching truth. It's profitable for teaching truth. The word teaching here just means instructing. It's instructing through content. You're taking content to get into someone's mind, understanding, and instruction. Romans 15.4 talks about this. It says, whatever was written, speaking of the, the written word of God, in earlier times, it was written for our instruction. Why did God have his word written? So that, he says, through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God has given us his written word, the scriptures, uh, so that we would have hope, so that we would have encouragement, so that we would have perseverance, therefore our instruction here in this life. It is only through the written word of God that we, by the interpretive power of the Holy Spirit residing in our hearts, that any human being is able to know, to understand, to seek after, to interpret, or to believe in the one true everlasting God. This is how God discloses himself to his children through his written living word. And it transcends time. It transcends language. His word is given to all those who need to hear and they all come to him and he loses none. It is through his written word that he reveals his truth. It is through his written word that he reveals his character. It is through his written word that he reveals his eternal plan for the redemption of mankind. God may show himself in his majesty and his power through the stars and the planets and the sun and the, the universe and the earth. And he may instill in each of us, as his word says, an understanding of right and wrong, good and evil, a conscience that beckons us to, to, to know him or to acknowledge him. And that makes us accountable before him. But the only way that any man will ever discern the depth of his sinfulness, his separation from God, the power of the cross and what Christ has done on the cross is through his written revealed word. Through you and me going and telling others the gospel of Jesus Christ and through handing them his written word and them reading his truth to understand who he is and what he does and what he will do. That is how the Lord reveals himself. The only possible means of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only source of salvation and eternal life is through the written word of God and the simultaneous work of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes, enlightening our eyes, opening our heart to understand his truth. So we must teach. We must teach. All of us must teach his truth. We must teach John fourteen six, which says Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life and no one, no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the only way. We must teach John three sixteen eighteen 18, and 36, which says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He who believes in him is not judged. 
He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. He who believes in the son has eternal life. He who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. All must hear that. You need to know that. I need to know that. This is the word of God. And this is the only means through which man can be saved from the wrath of God. His word will always, always be foolish to the world. But for us, it is the power and salvation of God. It is the word, it is the mind, it is the will of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through the end of chapter 2 talks about both the world's perception of God's word and the Christian's understanding of God's word. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it begins with the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. He goes on to say in chapter two, for to us, God revealed his wisdom and his word through the spirit, For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, this is is mind-blowing, listen to this. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now listen to this. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, No, we have received the spirit who is from God. Why? Here's the purpose clause. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. He has freely given to you his written word. And then he puts into the mind, into the heart of his people, his spirit. Which gives us the capability of understanding what he has revealed to us. That is the gift of God. If you believe in him, if you seek after him, if you are a child of God, that is a gift of his spirit through his revealed written word. That is an an amazing thing. He says, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom. This is not human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I don't even know what that means but that is pretty awesome. That we have the spirit of God within us to understand the revealed word of God given to us and we have the mind of Christ to understand and interpret the words of Christ that he has given to his children. I'm not saying you're ever gonna have perfect theology. You're always gonna have flaws and sins. You're always gonna misunderstand and you're always going to, 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 to not comprehend the full depth of God's word to the day we die and we see him, we know him the way he knows us. But as a child of God, you have been given the spirit which allows you to interpret his word correctly. So why would you ever listen to someone that does not have the spirit of God interpret the word of God for you? And why would you ever listen to someone that is not filled with the spirit, uh, uh, exemplifying fruit of the spirit, living a life in submission to the will and the word of God, teach you how to, to, to interpret the word that he's given to his children? Part of the dependent, our dependence for understanding his word with clarity and truth is being filled with his spirit. And that is a gift from the Lord. And if you are filled with his spirit, which many of you claim to be, then you must tell 
others his truth because you can understand his truth. You are capable. It's so easy for us in our pride to think, I can't do that. Stop thinking about yourself and trust what he has said and go into the world and tell the world about Jesus Christ. The word of God is the revelation of the spirit of God disclosing the mind and will of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that we can know his ways and his will and his word. Again, John MacArthur says in his commentary, it goes without saying that it is impossible to believe, understand, and follow what you don't even know. It is completely futile as well as foolish to expect to live a spiritual life without knowing spiritual truth. Biblically untaught believers, especially those in biblically untaught churches, are easy prey for false teachers. That's terrifying. Scripture is profitable for teaching truth. We must teach truth in everything we do. Secondly, the second benefit of Scripture is Scripture is profitable for refuting error. It's profitable for refuting error. He, has, he says here it's profitable to reprove. It means to rebuke, to correct, to convict. Just like we just said, it's easy for untaught believers to be prey for, for, for wolves. The greatest danger for the church, listen guys, the greatest danger for the church from the first century until today has always come from within the church. Do you understand that? The danger comes from within. It's not, it's not the world that we need to worry about. It's, it's those that are amongst us that we need to watch. It is within the church that wolves lurk. It is within the church that false teachers arise. It is within the church that the most devious and cunning and evil heresies have been born. Look around you right now, America. Look at the churches around you right now. And look at the evil things that they are saying from the pulpits. Heresy is born from within. And we must preach the word because it is the word of God that reproves. It is the word of God that refutes error. It is the word of God that will rebuke and reprove error, whether it is a lack of understanding or whether it's purpose deception. The word of God shines light into the darkness and exposes both ignorance and evil. We need the word for reproof. Acts 20, 27 through 31, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, this is one of the last times Paul sees him, he's leaving and he's telling the elders of the church in Ephesus, a brand new church, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He's basically saying, I proclaim to you everything. I did not hold back, I told you what God has said. And then he tells them, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he tells them, you be on guard for the flock that God has put you over to shepherd and to protect and to guard. He says, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, be on the alert. There are always people in the church sitting in these chairs that want followers, that want people to trust them, that want people to believe in them, 
that want disciples, be on your guard. The word warns us of the wolves. The word reveals the character and the conduct of false teachers so that the church can identify them clearly. A tree is known by its fruit, the Lord says. Romans 16, 17 through 18 says, I urge you, brethren, keep an eye on those who cause dissension. Keep an eye on those who cause hindrances. Contrary to the teaching which you have learned, turn away from them. Turn away from them. Such men are, not, are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are slaves to their own appetites. And by their smooth, flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Watch for those who divide. Watch for those who hinder. Watch for those who cause factions in the church. That is never the will of the Lord. He always calls for unity and love, reconciliation, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Watch for the wolves. That is why Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. The word brings clarity. The word develops discernment. The word will strengthen understanding and wisdom. You are a fool if you think I will be able to see it when it comes. It's the word of God that will give you the clarity to be able to discern and see evil when evil comes. Those who reject the word will reject his church. False teachers will form their own flocks because people desire teachers who will tell them what they want to hear and they will turn away from the faith. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Right after this, Paul tells Timothy to the church in Ephesus that actually went through what he was warning the the Ephesian elders in Acts. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. That's what we do. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from truth and will turn aside to myths. That time is now. Many people are finding teachers that will tell them exactly what they want to hear and they are turning from truth to myths. Systemic racism is a myth. Social justice is a myth. Critical race theory is is a myth. Coexistence between the church and the world is a myth. Anything devised in the minds of men that is not governed by and submissive to the revealed will of God in his written word is always a myth. It may sound loving. It may sound intellectual. It may sound right. But if it is not 100% submissive to what he says, then it is a myth. It is the word of God that refutes error, strengthens understanding, gives us discernment through the clarity of his truth. Scripture is profitable for refuting error. The third benefit of scripture is scripture is profitable for correcting conduct. It's not just false teaching that needs correction. It's false living. It's false living The word here means to correct, uh, to set right, to revise, to improve, to restore moral behavior or conduct. It is also within the church 
that unconfessed and unrepentant sin will devastate and divide the love and unity of the body. It's not just heretical teaching. It's, it's, it's unrepentant sin that will destroy the unity of the church. It's within the church that hidden hypocrisy will demoralize and discourage the faith of the children, of the immature, of the weak, of the frail. And it's the word of God that shines light on hypocrisy and on unrepentant sin to draw us to conviction and repentance and righteous living. It's the word of God that rectifies. It's the word of God that reconciles. It's the word of God that restores righteousness. The word of God corrects our character. Listen to his word. Listen to his word as I read his word to you and examine your character and and let him reveal immediately what in you and in me needs to change and needs 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 to be repented of. Galatians 5, 16 through 24 says, walk by the spirit. Walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So that for this purpose, so that you may not do the things that you please. Man, that's, that's heavy, right? The spirit of God is at work in you so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Here's clarity. Here's truth. Here's the correction of our conduct. Here are the deeds of the flesh. Immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmities. Strife. Jealousy. Outbursts of anger. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, of which I forewarned you and have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's good to hear. Everyone in here should be repenting right now. There's no one in here that can look at that list and go, nailed it. All of us look at that list and go, Father, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Help me to live in a way that glorifies you. So how do we glorify him? Well, here's the fruit of the spirit that is in opposition to everything we just said, opposition to the flesh. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Isn't that awesome? He doesn't just give you a list of everything that you are and then say, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. He does give us that list and then immediately tells us what it looks like to be submissive to his words, submissive to his spirit, controlled by his spirit, which is what spirit-led means. Peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, mercy, grace, self-control, love. This is how we live. So we see what we've done wrong, we repent of our sins, we get back up and we keep running towards Christ because God's word is sufficient to correct our behavior. It's the word of God that corrects 
our character. I was going to keep reading. There's a lot more. I mean, well, there's, there's plenty of places to read and to examine our conduct and our character. Colossians 3 is another wonderful place that just talks about that we are to live in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. We're to bear up with one another. We're to forgive one another, to forgive each other the way that Christ has forgiven us. And all these things for love and for unity. This is how we are to live. So we must preach the word because scripture is profitable for correcting our character. The fourth benefit of scripture is that scripture is profitable for rearing righteousness. For rearing righteousness. He says, it is profitable for training in righteousness. It's the same word that we use to talk about training up a child, rearing up a child in discipline and instruction. And in righteousness is what is right in the sight of God. It is what our Lord says is right and good. So we're training, we're exercising through both discipline and instruction what produces righteousness in our lives. The word of God trains us up as children of God and rears us in righteousness. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Our reproof from God, our discipline and instruction from the Lord comes from his love for his children. Just like our parents disciplined and instructed us through their words, our heavenly father disciplines and instructs us through his word. This is how he trains us up in righteousness and makes us like his son. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, this is scary. If you are without discipline, he says, of which all have become partakers, all of his children have become partakers of his discipline, then if you are without discipline, you are illegitimate children. If you've never been corrected by the Lord, if you've never been reproved by the Lord, if he is not training you up in righteousness in your life, then you are not his child. And that is scary. We want his reproof. We want his correction. We want his training. We want him to do his work in our life. Discipline and instruct me, Lord, in your way so that I become more like your son because this is how you love your children. He does not leave any of us to our passions. He doesn't leave any of us to our desires. He strips all of that from us and makes us into the image of his son because he loves us. Righteousness is not a burden for the children of God. And holiness is all we desire to forsake this world and to forsake our passions and our, and, and our lives here on this planet is not a problem for the children of God. We want him to take us and make us into the image of his son. He says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Should we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share in his holiness, both now, progressively, and forever, perfectly in eternity. Why does he reprove us? Because he not only wants us 
to share in his holiness, but he must have us share in his holiness, and he will not let any of us be separated from him. All discipline, he goes on to say, for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it, trained by it, reared up by discipline, he says, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When you are convicted, when you are confronted, when you are exposed and humiliated, it does not seem joyful in the moment. But for all of those who have been trained by his reproof, you enjoy the fruit of righteousness both in this life and for all eternity. And any of us knows, any child of God in here knows that we would never go back and change anything, anything that he has done in our lives. Every mistake, every flaw, every sin that we have done that he crushed in us and convicted us of and exposed in us and revealed to other people so that we would be exposed, all of those things were his perfect plan to rear us up in righteousness, to bring us to himself and to make us like his son. I always tell my girls, I've probably said this to you guys, I say it all the time, we don't hide our sin. Christians fight their sin. Hypocrites hide their sin. Unbelievers deny their sin. Christians fight their sin. Stop playing games. Stop pretending to be holy and be holy. And don't disregard what he says as if it were not true. Submit to his word and let him convict you according to his perfect discipline. And then let him train you up in righteousness according to the image of his perfect son, That's why the Lord has given us the church, by the way. You're not doing this on your own. We are part of the body of Christ and he supplies to each of us the grace needed for all of us to work together for this end, for the holiness of each individual part, for the holiness of the whole and for all of us to make it to the end and persevere to Christ. Ephesians 4 may be the best description of the church in all of the Bible. And in Ephesians 4, he says that the Lord has given us the church, he's given us pastors, he's given us teachers, and then he says this, I think this is in verse 11, he says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all, all members, attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, the maturity that measures to the stature which belongs to the fullness of Jesus Christ, that's it. If you are a child of God, you are on a progression of holiness to be made into the image of Jesus Christ and to be holy like he is holy. You will not make it in this present life, but you will progressively become more like him until the day you die and see him face to face and he makes you holy. There is no child of God that can maintain practiced sinfulness and, and, and either digress in holiness or plateau in holiness for the remainder of their life. He must convict and reprove and rebuke, and he must produce holiness because he loves us, and he will settle for nothing less than his perfect, loving transformation of his children. And check this out. It goes on to say, as a result of this maturity that he causes through the preaching of his word, he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children, Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. In other words, through the preaching of his word, he will produce practiced holiness, which will bring about discernment, which will cause you to discern, to know, to see deception when it comes. And you have to understand 
Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, right? And his, his workers, false teachers, are going to disguise themselves as preachers of truth. So the devil doesn't show up in a red jumpsuit and a pitchfork and tell you that he's gonna take you to hell and you should follow him. It always comes with the words that you speak. Love, unity, justice, peace, tolerance. But it does not mean what he says. And the only way to discern is to live a life of submission to his word so that you know the difference between Christ-like love and what the world calls love, between Christ-like justice and what the world calls justice, between Christ-like unity and what the world calls unity. We use the same words. We speak completely different languages. Fill your mind with his word and practice his truth so that you can discern good from evil and right from wrong. John Stott says in his commentary, do we hope either to, uh, in our own lives or in our teaching ministry to overcome error and to grow in truth, to co- overcome evil and grow in holiness? Then it is to the scriptures that we must primarily turn. For scripture is profitable for these things. Do you want discernment? Do you want to not be led into error? Do you want to know truth? There's one place to go, the living and active word of God. Do you want to put away evil and sinfulness? Do you want to mortify your fleshly desires and lusts and the things of this world? And do you want to put on Christ-like holiness and please him in the way that you live and the way that you treat your children and the way that you treat your wife and the way that you work? Then you must be a man and a woman of his word. It is the scripture that is profitable for training in righteousness. So we see that the scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So what is the purpose? What is the purpose of scripture? Well, he explains that in the next verse. The purpose of scripture. The next verse starts with the word so that. This is a purpose clause. Here is why, here is what the prophet is for. Here is what the profitability of scripture leads to. Why, or what is the purpose of scripture? The purpose of scripture is to make the man of God adequate, um, to make the, I'm sorry, to make the man of God uh, adequate and equipped for every good work. Adequate and equipped for every good work. This first and foremost is talking about, I believe, Paul talking to Timothy about Timothy being the man of God, the preacher of the church in Ephesus. So first and foremost, your pastors must be men of the word so that they are adequate and equipped to shepherd you If they are not men studying the word, submitting to the word, preaching the word, and living the word in the home and in work and everywhere else, then they will not be adequate and equipped. But you at the same time, all of us as children of God, uh, receive the same benefit and have the same calling in the sense of we all have a mission here on this earth. To be adequate means to be complete, to be proficient, to be capable or able to meet the demands. So that's, that's, that's really important. You must... You must teach the word and be reproved by the word, corrected by the word. You must be taught the word. You must, you must submit to the word and, and put on the word of God so that you are able to meet the demands of God. The word of God through the spirit of God enables us to follow and obey and submit to God and to please God. But it is the word that purifies us. It is the word that sanctifies us. It is the word that notifies us that we are able and faithful to him. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 talks about Christ 
and how he loves his church, what he does for us. It says, Christ also loved the church and he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus Christ saves us and sanctifies us through his word. Naturally, Romans 3 says, naturally that we are not righteous, none are righteous, not even one, none understand. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, all have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. So on our own, we cannot do good. On our own, we cannot seek him. On our own, we cannot know him. On our own, we cannot please him, worship him, love him, believe in him. We on our own can do nothing in the realm of God in the realm of holiness, in the realm of good. But he transforms us through the power of his word and through his spirit to be able to live in holiness. In fact, supernaturally, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says, as obedient children that have now been transformed by him, he says, like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Again, that, that, those words ought to make you tremble. The standard is perfect holiness in all that you do. That's what a child of God looks like. And he says, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I had a friend write me this week. He was reading Matthew. Actually, he read the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he texted me and he said, how can anyone live up to that mark? That should be what every one of us. I mean, you've been feeling it for months now as, as Shane has been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. Every time you leave, you're like, I can't do it. <laughs> I mean, it's... When you read what God's standard of holiness is, it is perfection. Perfection at all times, in all moments, with every word and thought and deed. None of us can do that. None of us can do that on our own. Matthew 19, when Jesus told the disciples how hard it was for a man to enter into heaven, it reminded me of what the disciples said. It says the disciples heard how hard it was you know, for, for a camel to get through an eye of a needle. They were very astonished. And they said to Jesus, then who can be saved? They got it. They finally got it. The answer is nobody, no one. And he says, and looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. On our own, we are inadequate. On our own, we are unable and incapable of meeting any of God's demands. You can't please God for a millisecond of your existence on your own. Even the, the greatest moment, the greatest moment that you ever had, you dive in front of a car to save an infant from dying and throw him over, you know, I mean, whatever. Just think of the most, the most heroic, the most giving, the most loving moment that you've had as a human being. Even in that moment, there is enough evil in you wrapped up in even your motives and your intentions and your thoughts and your being for you to rightly deserve eternity in hell. Your good means nothing. What he did on the cross is everything. And what he did is sufficient to save evil men and women like you and me. That is the love of our God. It is impossible for us to be holy. It is impossible for us to obey him. It is impossible for us to please him. It is impossible for us to love him. It is impossible for us to come to him. It is impossible for us to remain together with him. And it is impossible for us 
to make it to him and to be with him for eternity in heaven. But he sent his son to do the work that would cause it to be possible. He's given us his word to reveal to us exactly what that possibility is. And then he gives us his spirit and puts his spirit within us to ensure that it is impossible for us to ever be taken from him. And it is impossible for us to ever be made unholy or to be taken, or to, we will be holy. Let me say it that way. We must be holy. Only through the blood of Jesus Christ can we be saved. And only through the blood of Christ can we be holy. And only through submission and obedience to the living word of God are we able to please him, honor him, follow him, worship him, love him, and be made like Jesus Christ. The word of God is also profitable for the purpose of equipping us for every good work. He says, the, the word equipped here means to be, to be completed, to be sufficiently made ready, ready. It's the word of God that will make us ready and sufficient to do every good work. Good works are the things that God has laid out for us so that we would walk in them. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourself. That was a gift of the Lord, not as a result of works so that no man may boast for we are his workmanship. And here's what he does. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. He creates us in Christ for good works. And those good works aren't up to you and me. I don't get to decide what is good and what is not. What do I want to do and what do I not want to do? The good works that he has made for us, it says God has prepared them beforehand so that we would walk in them. God creates good and God does good. And when we submit to his will and his word, then we walk in the good works that he's called us to do, which is to go into the world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to call those who are in the darkness into his marvelous light, to sanctify one another as the church, to be kind, patient, loving, gentle, gracious, merciful. We are the bride of Christ and we submit to what he says, his good work. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you, the church, in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. To do what is pleasing in God's sight, it takes both his spirit working in you and then submission to his word. And that's how he accomplishes his good works. That's how he accomplishes his will. That's how you're able to worship him and please him and follow him and love him. That's the work of God. So, all scripture is purposed to develop Christ-like holiness in our character. All of scripture is purposed to produce steadfast perseverance in our lives. And all of scripture is purposed to equip us to do the work he has called us to do, which is here on this earth, which is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make disciples and to edify the saints. It's that simple. The word of God makes us holy. The word of God will cause us to persevere. The word of God will allow us to do the work he's called us to do, which is preach the gospel to the lost and edify the saints. That's why we are alive. That is our work here on earth. MacArthur in his commentary again says, when it comes to godly living and godly service, to growing in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, God breathed scripture provides for us the comprehensive and complete body of divine truth necessary to live as our heavenly father desires for us to live. The wisdom and guidance for fulfilling everything he commands us to believe, think, say, and do is found in his inerrant, authoritative, comprehensive, and completed word. Isn't that wonderful? 
You don't need visions. You don't need prophecies. You're not going to have them. And if somebody says they have them, they're crazy because they don't. His living word, which is completed, is where we know his will and his ways. And this is how we please him. By submitting this is why the word of God must govern everything we do in this church. It must command our pastors. It must direct our ministries. The word of God must guide each of us individually and all of us collectively as we strive together to do all the things, uh, all things for the glory of Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ as the bride of Jesus Christ here on this earth. So if there's anything you get out of this sermon, it is be men and women of his word. Just like God told Israel in Joshua 1, we could say this to our church today. Faith Community Church, be strong and very courageous. Be careful. Be careful to do according to all of the law which the Lord has commanded you. Do not turn from the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Has God not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for always being with us. Thank you for being with us through your spirit, through your word. We live in a day and age where we can hear from your voice at any moment on our phone, on our computer, from the book. Given us your completed, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word that we know the will and the ways of God that, that, that you predestined before the foundation of the earth for us to know. You have revealed to us all things that we need to know for life and for godliness. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for neglecting your word. Forgive us when we stand in judgment over your word. Forgive us when we choose to please ourselves and to submit to our own will rather than to submit to your will. And Father, strengthen us through the promises of your word to live in a way that glorifies you to be men and women of holiness, of faithfulness, and of truth, to be men and women of love, gentleness, patience, kindness, peace, goodness, self-controlled, to be gracious, to be merciful, to be unified, to sacrifice our good for the good of others, and to all, do all things for your glory. Father, we pray that, that you would help us to meditate on your word day and night. Help us to be strong and courageous. Help us to be discerning. Help us to grow more and more in righteousness and holiness. And thank you for your love. We pray all these things in your heavenly name.
Amen.